We'll be back in the book of Jude this evening. Jude. Jude, verses 14 through 16, page 1216. If you're using a pew Bible, Jude, verses 14 through 16. This is what we read. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's ask his blessing on our study of it tonight. Father, we have heard uh, your word read, uh, and now we look forward to hearing your word preached. Uh, And Lord, we do pray tonight that you would be with the preacher, that you would help him uh, to do his job well, to remember the things he has studied uh, and learned, uh, and to communicate them clearly. Be with the listener too, Lord. Help us to listen well and to apply these words to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People of God, by now you may have noticed that the middle of Jude's letter is really uh, one big diatribe uh, against the people he mentioned in verse 4. Right, Those certain people who've crept into the church unnoticed, who were long ago designated for condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of God into sensuality. In verses 14 through 16, he brings that diatribe to a close by setting before us one more characteristic of these false teachers. And that one more characteristic is this, they are ungodly. They are ungodly. You can see that word ungodly appears in some form four times in our text tonight. It's really the operative word here. Uh, Jude has actually already told us back in verse four that these certain people who've crept into the church are ungodly. And now he takes time to set forth in greater detail what he meant by that and the truth of their ungodliness. Now, as he does, what do we see about their ungodliness? Well, in the first place tonight, we notice that these false teachers' ungodliness is is an age-old problem, all right? Their ungodliness is an age-old problem problem. The fourfold reference to ungodliness found in verse 15 is, you might notice, contained in an ancient prophecy of Enoch. Now, who is Enoch? Well, uh, Jude tells us that Enoch was the seventh from Adam, and we see this in Genesis chapter 5. If we 
turn to Genesis chapter 5. You can do it if you want. Otherwise, you can just sort of listen and make a mental note and check it out later. But if we turn to Genesis chapter 5, we'll read about how we get to Adam, the first man, to Noah, who was really the next significant man to come on the scene. And, and there we're told in Genesis 5 that Adam had a son named Seth, and Seth had a son named Enosh, and Enosh had a son named Canaan. Canaan had a son named Mahalel, Mahalel had a son named Jared, and Jared had a son named Enoch. So let's just count that for a second. We have Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch. Seven, right? Seven, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Now that Enoch is, a little bit of a side note, famous for what? He's famous for being one of two people uh, in the history of the world to not die. Uh, if you look at Genesis 5, you'd see the repeated phrase, and he died, all right? Genesis 5, verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And that refrain, and he died, is repeated all throughout Genesis 5, except in the case of Enoch, where we read this in verse 23, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. The writer of Hebrews tells us exactly what happened. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. So Enoch, like Elijah, is one of two people to ever live who didn't die. He was simply just taken up to the Lord. So that's Enoch. And apparently, this is new information, but apparently Enoch was, was a prophet. Because Jude here cites a prophecy that Enoch made in which he speaks about the Lord coming to judge the ungodly. Now the fact that Enoch made this prophecy about the ungodly tells us what? Well, it tells us that Enoch himself who lived a long, 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 long time ago, before the flood even, was familiar with the problem of ungodliness. Ungodliness was something that existed even in his own day. And what does that tell us? It tells us that ungodliness is an age-old problem. And what this speaks to ultimately is the condition of the human heart. Boys and girls, people are not by nature good. The world will often tell you people are by nature good. Music, secular music, many times speaks a message that people are by nature good. In fact, Luke Bryan says what? I believe most people are good. Rousing lyric, Luke. How do you win Grammys? I don't know. But uh, that's the music we listen to. People are not by nature good. You are not by nature good. I am not by nature good. No, we are sinful, and so it has been since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Of course, what is the solution? 
to this sinfulness? What is the solution to uh, this, this ungodliness that characterizes the human race? Well, the solution is regeneration. The solution is the new birth. It's only as God gives us new life in Christ through the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, that our hearts change and we become increasingly godly. That's it. Apart, apart from the powerful working of God in the gospel, we are ungodly through and through. That's the human condition. And this is an age-old condition, an age-old problem. Well, let's notice second that these false teachers' ungodliness bears terrifying consequences. You'll notice Enoch's prophecy is is not so much a prophecy about the ungodly as it is about the judgment of God which will come upon the ungodly when Christ returns at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. Just listen again to to what Jude writes. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. All right, Jude here is clear. The ungodly will not get away with their ungodliness. Those who live in moral rebellion against God, those who do not obey God's word, those who are ungodly will be convicted and condemned for their sin when the Lord returns. The judgment of God is the terrifying consequence of ungodliness. Now, for the thoughtful among us, I think this truth should lead to a question. And the question is this. What hope do I have? Because the fact is, right, all of our lives are filled with ungodliness. I look back on my life. It's not hard for me to see ungodliness. I see it in my thoughts. I see it in my speech. I see it in my actions, right? It's there. My life, my past is full of ungodliness. I don't need binoculars to see it. I can see it even with my failing eyes. I can't see the screen back there, but I can see my my ungodliness simply when I look back in my life. And so what hope do we have of standing before God in judgment and of being declared righteous in his sight and welcomed into his kingdom if the consequences of ungodliness are judgment and wrath. What hope do we have? Well, our hope is stated plainly down in Jude verse 24. Listen to what we read in Jude verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you hear what our hope is? Our hope is not that we'll be able to present ourselves blameless in God's presence. No way, no chance, no how. Our hope is that God is able 
to present us blameless in his presence. That's our hope. Romans 5, 6 tells us how God will do it and has done it. Romans 5, 6 says Christ died for the who? Do you know? The ungodly. He died for the ungodly. And because he did, we can rest assured that God is able to present ungodly people like me and you blameless before himself in the presence of his glory. Salvation is of the Lord. That's here in Jude. Salvation is of the Lord. And the sinner has two options, ultimately. The sinner can either stand before God in judgment, covered in his own ungodliness, or the sinner can stand before God in judgment, covered in the righteousness that God provides through Christ. Those are the two options we have. The believer is the one who chooses Christ. The believer is the one who says, I am ungodly, but God is able to present me blameless before his presence and glory through the justifying and sanctifying blood of Jesus. That's, that's what the believer says. The unbeliever says, I'll, I'll take my chances. I'll go in my own ungodliness or righteousness, which is ungodliness. The believer says, no, thank you. I'm going to trust in him who is able. Let's notice third, that these false teachers' ungodliness is sadly familiar. It's sadly familiar. In verse 17, Jude applies Enoch's prophecy to the certain people of verse 4, and he gives specific examples of ungodliness as Jude sees it in their own lives. And what's sad about these examples of ungodliness that Jude sees in these false teachers' lives is that these examples are familiar to us. They're familiar because, because we see these ungodly deeds in our own hearts and in our own lives. We see these ungodly deeds even in Christ's visible church. And that should not be, right? These are ungodly deeds, these are deeds which characterize those who walk in the way of Cain and who've given themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and who've perished in Korah's rebellion. They are not things that should characterize the people of God. Well, let's, let's just look at them and see what these things are that ought not characterize us, but unfortunately sometimes do. The first two are best taken together. He says, these are grumblers and malcontents. The word for grumblers reminds us of Israel in the wilderness. God delivered them from Egypt in a powerful and glorious way, and yet at the first sign of difficulty, what did the Israelites do? The Israelites grumbled. They said to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to die out here in the wilderness? They grumbled. The word malcontent is similar. It just refers to someone who is always complaining about their lot in life. The malcontent is someone who is never happy. He's never content. He just lives in a constant state of discontentment, of woe is me. And Jude here is telling us that such people 
and even more, such attitudes are ungodly. We might, we might think grumbling and complaining is harmless. It's not. It's not. It's an affront to the sovereign hand of God, isn't it? Which orders our lives in such a way so as to conform us to the image of Christ. When Israel grumbled in the wilderness, Israel was essentially saying, Lord, we don't trust your plan for us. Lord, we don't believe you know what's best. Lord, we, we think we know better than you about what we need for our lives. And when we grumble and complain about our circumstances, we're saying the same thing. Reminded again, it's my favorite Lord's Day, Lord's Day 10. I feel like I just cited it. I don't know. I was on vacation and then who knows what's going on. It's been a busy week. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But Lord's Day 10, it's about the, it's about the providence of God and um, it talks about how all things, right, good things and bad things, all things come to us from God's fatherly hand. But then the catechism in the next question and answer, it tells us how to respond to this truth that all things come from God's fatherly hand. It says we're to respond to this truth by being patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and by being confident that no matter what happens, nothing will separate us from God's love. Right? Those are the three responses that a believer can have. Really, just two. Patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and confident in God's love through it all. Notice what's not an option. Grumbling. Grumbling is not an option in our response to God's providence. Think of Jesus. Did Jesus grumble? Did Jesus complain? Even when he was going to the cross for your sins and my sins, no, we all know he did not. It's the ungodly who grumble. It's the ungodly who complain about their lot in life and who find fault with everyone and everything. Next, Jude says, Jude says that these, these false teachers, they follow their own sinful desires. Earlier in this letter, Jude said about these people that they are, they are like unreasoning animals who operate according to their instincts. He's saying almost the same thing here. He's making that point again. They follow their own sinful desires. They listen to their feelings. They follow their hearts. They do what seems good to them rather than, rather than what the Lord has said is good to him. And once again, we need only to look to Jesus to see the ungodliness of such living. I mean, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, overwhelmed by the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath for our sins, remember, Jesus longed for there to be another way. He pleaded with God for there to be another way. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet in the end, he surrendered to the will of the Father, didn't he? He said, yet not my will, but yours be done. It's the ungodly who follow their own sinful desire. It's the ungodly who put their will over God's will. Next, Jude says these, these certain people, they are loud-mouthed boasters. They're loud-mouthed boasters. That means they, they speak with pride and arrogance. 
They're the kind of people who are not interested in hearing what others have to say. They're only interested in making sure others hear what they have to say. These are people who continually prop themselves up in the sight of their fellow man. They are like the tax collector in the temple who said to God, God, thank you that I am not like other men. Thank you that I am not like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. <coughs> Excuse me. How would we describe that man? He was a loudmouthed boaster. The apostle Paul encountered loudmouthed boasters in Corinth. Some were boasting about being Hebrews. Others were boasting about being Jews. Still others were boasting about being descendants of Abraham. Others were boasting about being a Christian as if being a Christian is something someone can boast about. We all have a tendency, or at least the ability, maybe not all of us have a tendency, but, but many of us have the tendency to be, to be loudmouth boasters. Many of us have the tendency to, to elevate ourselves and our families and our jobs and our spirituality over others through boasts and brags and look-at-me statements. Jude calls this for what it is. He says, this is ungodliness. This is the way of Cain. This is the way of Balaam. This is the way of Korah. And when we look at Jesus, what do we see? I mean, if anyone had a reason to boast, it was him. He was God. There's no, there's no hint of boasting in Jesus, is there? In fact, it's just the opposite. We're told that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he took the form of a servant, and he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Sinful man tries to prop himself up. Jesus just, just went down, down, down. The last example of ungodliness that Jude sets before us is this. He says, he says these ungodly people who've crept into the church are people who show, show favoritism to gain an advantage. These people whom Jude is speaking about um, are people who are drawn to and partial to people who can benefit them. If a homeless guy walked into their church, they might have ignored him. They might have had nothing to do with him because that man was no, no advantage to them. If a wealthy man from the community walked in, oh, these, these, these loudmouth boasters, they'd be the first ones to introduce themselves. Welcome. We're glad you're here. They show favoritism to gain an advantage. They practice Christian hospitality insofar as it will benefit them. Friends, this too is ungodliness. Let me ask, which of these examples of ungodliness do you see in your heart and in your life? Are you a discontented grumbler? I sometimes can be. Are you a follower of your own sinful desires? Are you a loudmouth boaster? Are you one who shows favoritism to gain an advantage? Whichever it is, the task for us tonight as followers of Christ is to recognize 
that these ungodly traits belong to those whom Jude is resoundingly condemning in this letter. These ungodly traits belong to certain men who've crept into the church unnoticed, who long ago were designated for condemnation. Ungodly men. These traits belong to Cain, to Balaam, to Korah, not to the redeemed child of God. And so if you see these sins in your life tonight, confess them. Confess them. And ask God to help you live a life of increasing godliness for his glory. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you again for the opportunity you've given us tonight to study your word. Father, we confess that by nature we are ungodly people. We praise you for being the one who saves ungodly people through the blood of your son on the cross. Lord, even as we see these sins of ungodliness which characterize the likes of Cain and Balaam and Korah, we pray that you would show us where these things exist in our own lives that we might turn away from them and be obedient to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.